Back to the letter of Romans, I invite you to turn with me this morning, and in that letter, back to the ninth chapter of Romans. Romans chapter 9, as many of you know, has been called the hardest chapter in all Scripture, and that for good reason. We are brought here up against things that we quite frankly, do not understand, at least not as well as we might like. Not only do we have here the doctrine of God's sovereign election, his choice of some for salvation, for eternal life, but we have also here the doctrine of reprobation, that while saving some, God condemns others. Now, even long-standing and dedicated Christians bristle sometimes at the message of this passage to say nothing of those who know not God. It's one of those passages that, truth be told, even ministers at first blush anyway could wish were not in the Bible, but it is, and this too is God's word, and so breathed out by God for our reproof and our correction and our training in righteousness that we may be thoroughly equipped for every good work, toward which end we go to it now with a ready and submissive, but also expectant spirit to hear God's voice speaking to us once we've asked for those very things in prayer. And for them we do ask, O God, that you will give us hearts that love your word, that receive your word, even those things that are difficult for us to understand, in fact impossible those things that go beyond us in our human nature and even more in our sinful and fallen human nature. But Father, what is faith if it is not trusting that you are always right and always do what is right, always, and well-pleasing in your sight, whether it meets with our understanding or our approval or not? Father, give us more than just willing spirits Give us joyful spirits to receive your word, we pray. Speak for your servants are listening. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Romans chapter 9 and verse 14. What shall we say then? He's talked about God's sovereign election of one and not another. What shall we say then? Paul goes on. Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. He says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it depends, not on human will or exertion, but on God, who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, and notice we won't make anything of this in the sermon, but notice that scripture and God are used almost synonymously by Paul. If the scripture says it, God says it. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you? O man, 
to answer back to God. Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honored use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and make his power known, has endured with much patience the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. As indeed he says in Hosea, those who were not my people, I will call my people, and her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sands of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Now Paul knew that the doctrine he preached, the doctrine of the sovereignty of God, and particularly his sovereign election, would be met with objections and with complaints. He had heard them before, And by the time he wrote this letter to the Christians in Rome, he could anticipate what many of them would say. Well, if God saves some and hardens others, is he really just? Or or if God hardens some and gives mercy to others, how can he hold us responsible for believing in him or, or not believing in him? And those same questions are heard today wherever the sovereignty of God is sovereignly preached, faithfully preached and proclaimed. The fact is, if you set before others the doctrine of the sovereignty of God and his sovereignty in election, I say if you set it before others and you do not get these same objections from your hearers, then you have not faithfully set forth the doctrine of God's sovereignty. This is the test. Here is the true test of your understanding and your explanations of God's sovereignty. Do others object to you and say, unjust, unfair, when you tell them about it? Well, then you have been faithful. You've been faithful to the Bible because these are precisely the arguments that Paul faced when he taught the doctrine of sovereign election. But where those objections do not rise, the sovereignty of God has not been faithfully proclaimed. No one ever raises these objections when an Arminian view of God's sovereignty is proclaimed. Nobody ever complains this way. On the other hand, I am duly warned, and you should be as well, that When approaching such deep and difficult doctrines as the ones before us this morning, there is a certain Christian tactfulness and humility that is most fitting. Indeed, that is required of us all. 
Remember that Paul began this chapter pouring out his heart with tears, wishing that he himself could be damned, if only for the sake of the lost of his kinsmen, of the Jews who had rejected Christ. And we too must approach a text like this with tenderness and with minds that wish nothing more than to submit to God's holy word. If there is an offense given by this doctrine, it must be the offense of God's word, not of us. Charles Hodge aptly reminds us that fidelity does not require that we should make the truth as offensive as possible. On the contrary, we are bound to endeavor, as Paul did, to allay all opposing feelings in the minds of those whom we address and to allow the truth unimpeded by the exhibition of anything offensive on our part to do its work upon the heart and conscience. Well, that's my goal this morning in the preaching of God's word, fidelity with sensitivity. But neither will I sugarcoat this truth for fear that someone might take offense. If these doctrines offended when Paul, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, proclaimed them, then they will offend today as well. And for that, I cannot make apology. This is God's word. This is not mine. As I say, there are two main objections to God's sovereign election his choosing of some to eternal life and the assignment of others to eternal punishment. The first, Paul anticipates with a question in verse 14, is there injustice in God's part? And the second objection, Paul anticipates with another question, why does he find fault for who can resist his will? And to both of those objections, Paul gives an immediate and frankly blunt answer. Or I should say answers to those two questions followed by some biblical evidence. To the first objection, that God might be unjust in this matter, Paul gives one of the strongest possible objections in the Bible. He says, by no means. He could not possibly be clearer. And to the second objection, that God still holds every man and woman, boy and girl, responsible for receiving or rejecting Christ, he says, who are you? Who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Now, admittedly, those answers are not entirely or immediately satisfying to our tastes. We are used to being catered to, and we demand knowledge and understanding. We want to know, and that's not entirely a bad thing. We are, after all, created in the image of God in knowledge. God has put eternity into our hearts, the scripture says, and we must seek it out. So we hate, of course, we hate to come to a locked door and find that we don't have the key. But it is not as though we are left with no explanation at all. Paul does give us some longer answers after the blunt responses of verses 14 and 19. And in those verses, we find for ourselves some important lessons. First this, Christian, you must embrace the fact, for fact it is, that God is sovereign over election. 
and sovereign over reprobation. He is sovereign over election, and he is sovereign over reprobation. We've already begun last week to consider his sovereignty in election, that is, his choosing whom he will save, whom he has elected, that is. We're reminded again of it in verse 15 in our text today. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. And notice the pronoun, I. I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. This is God's doing from beginning to end. And just in case the point isn't clear enough from that question, uh, that quotation rather of God speaking to Moses, Paul will make it perfectly clear by going on now in verse 16 to lay it out plainly so that it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Everything human, everything human is excluded here from the equation of God's sovereign election. Everything man wills, everything man does, from the inside out, everything human is totally excluded from consideration so that God's election, God's choice of whom he will save is just that. God's choice. I hope that this fundamental truth has been settled for you, for, for all of you who have seen it again and again and again. You've seen it in your own reading of the scripture. We've come to it over and again in the preaching of God's word for the simple reason that it is ubiquitous. It is everywhere in the Bible, from Genesis to Revelation and at every point in between. What might give us some trouble is the idea that God is also sovereign over reprobation, over the exclusion of the non-elect. He will have mercy on whom he will have mercy, and we can live with that, perhaps. But he goes on to say in verse 18 that he hardens whomever he wills. It's an obvious reference to Pharaoh, to whom God had said in the days of Moses, and Paul quotes in verse 17, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. God did this. Look and see God's hands all over the rejection of Pharaoh, even raising him up for this purpose. If it is God who raised him up, and it was God who hardened him, God who decreed all of this, God who did all of this. Well, there have been many attempts to try and explain away the idea that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. The most popular of them being that God hardened Pharaoh's heart by simply allowing Pharaoh to harden his own heart. But every attempt to defend God in this matter of hardening human hearts simply fails in the end to relieve God of his sovereignty over all things, even the evil that men do, even the hardness of the hearts 
of those who reject him. Even the grammar itself leaves us on this hook, so to speak. If God is the active agent in showing mercy in verse 18, then he is also the active agent in the hardening of hearts in the same verse. They are perfectly parallel. The language and the logic of this text keeps them that way. He has mercy on some. He hardens others. It is, concludes John Murray, after a long and laborious study of this passage, sovereignty, pure and simple. That is the only reason for the differentiation by which some are consigned to hardening, while others, equally ill-deserving, are made vessels of mercy. Christians have gone round and round and round over this doctrine, all the way back in high school Bible class. I can remember writing a a paper on this passage, and the arguments our classmates had over what has come to be called over the years double predestination. That is, that God predestines the lost to hell just as surely as he predestines the elect for heaven. But I've come to the conclusion, dear flock, that arguing over this matter really is to miss the point. It's to miss the point almost completely. The focus of this passage is on God's compassion. The focus of this passage is on God's mercy. The question of verse 14 concerned the justice of God in Paul's answer is what? He sends us to mercy. The question of verse 14 concerned the justice of God, and Paul's answer is to send us to mercy, which brings me to the second point this morning. Second, you must embrace the fact that God is at one and the same time perfectly just and perfectly merciful. At the same time, and completely both. Sometimes we say that we want God to be perfectly just in some fit of anger over something we've seen or witnessed or whatever. We want God, we want God to be perfectly just. And indeed, isn't that the implication of verse 14, the objection there, that is often raised concerning God's sovereign election and reprobation of people? The objection is that God, God, you just can't do these sort of things, God. This is unjust. You can't make arbitrary choices between one person and another and remain just. As I say, the very objection misses the point. The real question is this. Are you ready? How can a perfectly just God save anyone? How can God, in his perfect justice, save anyone at all? We just learned in this letter of Paul that all have sinned. All have fallen short of the glory of God. The real wonder is not that some go to hell. The real wonder is that God brings anyone to heaven. I tell you, dear friends, you do not want a God 
who is only just. You don't want him to be only just. Really. A couple of weeks ago, I was driving in the semi on a dark night on Route 231, and I was between Bowling Green and Scottsville, Kentucky, when a pickup truck passed me in the inside lane on the left. No problem, I get, I get passed a lot when I'm driving the truck. But then, a minute later, another set of headlights appeared in my mirror very quickly. And just as quickly, that car passed me too. And he pulled in front of me and up behind the pickup truck, and suddenly, it was Christmas. <laughs> that car lit up from back to front, top to bottom. It was, of course, a policeman, and he was pulling over that fellow who had just passed me to write him a speeding ticket. But here's the thing. Just then, I looked down at my speedometer, and I was speeding too. Now, I mean, not to the same degree as that fellow in the pickup truck, but just the same. And at that moment, I was glad for one thing, that that policeman was not perfectly just. Because if he were, I would have gotten a ticket too. Be careful. Be careful what you wish for. The fact is, nobody really wants God to be all justice. If God were only just, nobody would be saved. No, it is because he is also merciful that we have hope and confidence. We all deserve death. We all deserve hell. It's a wonder that anyone is saved. In fact, that is the real wonder, not that some will perish. That's no surprise at all to anyone who has come to know the thrice holy God that has revealed himself to them in the scripture. That is no surprise, but that God saves that. That's the wonder, the real wonder of it all. It might help us all to remember the context in which God first uttered these words. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. It it was, you might recall, when God's own people, Israel, were encamped at Mount Sinai and having promised earlier to obey the Lord and all of his commandments, now in Moses' absence, they decided to what? Make a golden calf, remember? And they were going to worship this golden calf. They did, called it God, and praised it for leading them out of Egypt. Understand the picture here. Moses, Moses is, is with the Lord. God is blessing Moses with blessing for the people. And they, no sooner than that, turn their backs on God and worship idols with revelry. God tells Moses he is going to destroy them, every last one of them. And start over again with Moses. Moses pleads for forgiveness for the people to spare them. And it is in that context that God says, 
I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. It puts the whole thing in perspective, doesn't it? They all deserved to die. And so do you. And so do I. Just as surely as they, but God has elected us for eternal life. Now that's the real matter for contemplation and wonder. All of us alike have turned away from God. All of us like sheep have strayed away. All of us have spit on him with our sins and deserve nothing, nothing, nothing but wrath. That we deserve a plenty. And there is no real difference between you and the very worst of them. No difference in yourself, that is. But he will have mercy on whom he will have mercy. Praise God. Praise God for the rest of your life and into heaven as you step over the threshold someday that he is not all justice, but that he is also a God of mercy. Praise him that while his justice is perfect and terrible and must always be satisfied and will be satisfied on the wicked forever in hell, it has been satisfied for you on the cross where so mercifully, unspeakably mercifully, he took upon himself to satisfy his own justice for you and in your place. No Christian who truly appreciates the depths and the heights and the greatness of the mercy he has received from God will worry over much about understanding the ways of God. In these matters of election and reprobation, he or she will be too busy praising the Lord, thanking the Lord, calling out to the Lord with joy and gratitude that that mercy found him, found me. And it will be just as well because third and finally we must recognize that God is under no compunction to explain any of this to us. We are clay. He's the potter. If he decides to make some vessels for honored use and others for dishonorable use, in the end, that's God's business. Not ours. Verse 20, but who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? God is God. That says it all. God is God. And whether you will, as we sometimes say, let God be God or not, is not the issue except as it bears on your own hearts. God is God no matter what. And his thoughts are far above your thoughts and his ways beyond your ways. And the sooner you learn that in life, the better. Because these are not the only things that are going to cause you to stop and scratch your heads. Life is filled with things 
that cause us to leap for joy, things that drive us to our knees in anguish and pain with tears that share this one characteristic in common. They are beyond us to understand or to grasp, infinitely beyond us, because they are the thoughts of an infinite God. And you are finite. I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me. Declaring the beginning from the end, the end from the beginning, and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. Ours, dear flock, ours is not to understand all these things but rather to believe and to obey. That's for us, to believe and to obey. Or we might even put it more simply, ours is but to worship. Give glory to God, regardless of whether we can discern his ways and fix them in our minds and fit them together. And remembering this, that if you could understand God perfectly, if you could submit God to your mind... then he's not God. And he ceases to be God. But he is. He is God, and praise be to him that he's decided to save anybody, especially me. Any of the ill-deserving, though we are no less ill-deserving than any of the rest. In fact, though we were not even part of the original covenant people, so to speak, the Jews, electing grace has found us strangers to the covenant too and made us vessels of mercy prepared for glory. Even us, even us Gentiles. Now, I say there may be some of you in the hearing of my voice who are disappointed right now. You wanted to hear a sermon full of polemics. You wanted to hear arguments for and against the doctrines of election and reprobation. Or or you wanted to hear a sermon that explained this passage to you. Maybe that explained that this passage doesn't really mean what it seems to mean. Others of you may be angry because you've come to understand just now that it really does mean exactly what it says. And you are unwilling to accept it. But I cannot personally think of a better way to respond than this. This way described by a Baptist pastor known to many of you by the name of John Piper. Who says that if we are rightly affected by God's word in Romans 9. We will be deeply sobered by the awful severity of God. We will be humbled to the dust by the absoluteness of our dependence on his unconditional mercy and irresistibly allured by the infinite treasury of his glory ready to be revealed to the vessels of glory. Thus we will be moved to forsake all confidence in human distinctives or achievements. We will entrust ourselves to mercy Alone, 
and the hope of glory, we will extend this mercy to others that they may see our good deeds and give glory to our Father who is in heaven.